Our Old Testament scripture reading this morning comes from Daniel chapter 4. I'll read the entire chapter of this familiar story. If you care, you can follow along. I'll be reading out of the ESV, or if you just want to listen, that is uh, fine as well. This is God's holy word. Please give careful attention to it. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders of the Most High God and what he has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. And I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions in my head alarmed me. And so I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, and that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers came in. And I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, who was named Belshazzar, after the name of my God, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that thy spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and the interpretation. And the visions of my head as I lay in my bed were these. I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. And the tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. And its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. And the beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. And I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. And he proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. And let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. And let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. And let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. And the sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living one may know that the most high rules and the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will, and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. And then Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. And the king answered and said, Belshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belshazzar answered and said, O my lord, 
May the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong so that its top reached to the heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to the heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven, saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, in the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field, till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord, the king, that you shall be driven from among men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you. From the time that you know that heaven rules, therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may be perhaps a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. For at the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is this not great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men, and he ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. And my counselors and my lords sought me. And I was established in my kingdom. And still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, pray and extol and honor the king of heaven. 
For all his works are right, and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Thus the reading of God's word. So you notice, first of all, I've done something unusual this morning. It was a busy week for the Estelles. Um, and I thought as I was preparing this that I would give a handout for a certain portion of the sermon. Don't be distracted by it now. Uh, but even though I suppose I could have taken pains to express all this verbally to you and you could hear what I was going to say and try and make sense of it, I went back to an old custom when I was in the pastorate of giving a sermon note page, perhaps with some things on it, to help people grasp God's word. So when we get there, um, it'll make sense why I decided to go that route, and hopefully it will help you. So as we come to uh, a new chapter, as we're marching through the early stories of the book of Daniel, we want to ask what the point of each chapter is. Uh, I've already said on several occasions that the main point of these early opening chapters and the book of Daniel in general is that God is sovereign. He overrules and will rule in the world according to his will. But we want to ask what each chapter's contribution is and its particular purpose in supporting that overall point. Well, the purpose of this chapter is quite simple, um, and it can be found in the last sentence of the chapter, namely that those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. Those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. So let's examine how this plays out in the structure and content of this chapter. I have three points this morning. Uh, first of all, the past is prologue. The past is prologue. Uh, secondly, prophet's proclamation, or the prophet's proclamation, and here I have in mind not just Daniel's, but to examine the tree imagery here that prophets often use. And finally, Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation. So the past is prologue, the prophet's proclamation, and Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation. Now what I'd like to do in this first section is also a little bit unusual and out of course with what normally Pastor Kiel does, or I do, or, or uh, Reverend Van Junen, or others that we may call to this pulpit. But it might help you, if, if, if you care to do this, is to open your Bibles to Genesis 1, 2, and 3, or 1 and 2 in particular, and then also keep a finger in Daniel 4. Because here with the past is prologue, basically the point I'm going to unveil for you, want to help you see, is how much Daniel 4 is linked to the opening chapters in the book of Genesis, and that's not without significance. Now, you can just listen along and catch the point as well. You don't have to follow, but I thought it may be helpful to cue you in to that. There are lots of parallels between the magisterial creation account and here I'm thinking Genesis 1 and 2, not just Genesis 1, and what's going on in Daniel 4. Consider the following. The tree of life in Genesis 2.9 is located in the center of the Garden of Eden. 
In our section, Daniel 4, Nebuchadnezzar sees a dream in which it is centered in the center of the earth, verse 7. In Genesis 2.9, Yahweh made grow out of the ground every tree pleasant to the sight and good for food. In our chapter, chapter 4 of Daniel, says the sight of the tree reaches the end of the earth, verse 8, and the tree provides abundant fruit and food for all, verse 9. In Genesis 1.29, God gives man and woman, quote, every tree which has seed-bearing fruit to be their food. And then in Genesis 2 and 3, it goes on, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil became through human arrogance and attempting to become like God, transgressed, if you will. In our chapter, in Daniel, the tree symbolizing the Babylonian monarch and his empires, we'll see shortly, becomes the occasion of his sinful pride because of its size and splendor. In Genesis 3, the man and the woman are not slain for their disobedience and arrogance in attempting to become like God. And so, too, in our chapter, Daniel 4, the tree is not to be completely destroyed, but only cut down to its stump with its vital roots remaining intact, verses 11 and 12. In Genesis 3, the man and the woman are not slain for their disobedience and arrogance in attempting to be like God, and so too in our chapter. As we just said, the tree is not to be completely destroyed, but only cut down. In Genesis 3, moving on in Genesis to verses 22 and 23, the man and the woman are ejected from the garden so that they cannot reach out and eat also of the tree of life. In our section, Daniel 4, the tree whose height reached to the heavens is cut down to size and deprived of its beauty and usefulness, verse 11. And the watcher comes and pronounces judgment. Now here a little side note or insertion. This word for watcher develops originally from a verb meaning to awaken or to arouse and then moves to being wakeful or vigilant, and then is what we call nominalized, turned into a noun to become a watcher or an angel. And that's significant for the next parallel. In Genesis 3.24, the cherubim are the divinely appointed angelic beings who with flashing swords, you'll remember, protect the garden so that Adam and Eve could not return there nor any other human being and go back to the tree of life. That would have to be obtained another way now. In our chapter, Daniel 4, a watcher, verse 10, descends from heaven to declare God's judgment on the tree, that is, Nebuchadnezzar. And in the final stanza, the divine command is carried out by the decree of the watchers, angels. In Genesis 1.28, God grants man and woman dominion over the birds of the heavens and the beasts that crawl on the earth, Genesis 1.26. In our passage, Daniel 4, verse 9, 
Beneath the tree, the beasts of the field find shade in its branches. Under its branches, the birds of the heavens reside. Some of you at this point may wonder if you're watching closely, no pun intended. Do we really have an allusion to Genesis 1, 26 through 28 here? But that can be corroborated from our passage two weeks ago in Daniel 2, verse 37 to 38, if you remember, which states explicitly that the God of heaven had given Nebuchadnezzar dominion, quote, over the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens. Finally, in Genesis 1.30, the beasts of the earth and the birds of the heavens are given green plants for food. In Daniel 4, we read the beasts of the field and the birds of heaven feed off the tree, verse 9. And Nebuchadnezzar's portion is to live in the grass of the earth, and his human heart, his mind, is to be changed into the heart of a beast, verse 13. Now, not only do we hearken back to the creation account, but there are also allusions, just like last week for those who were here, to Babel, once again, and also all the way back to Genesis 1. Which you'll remember, kids, the Babel episode when people tried to aspire to heaven and God judged them by scattering them and giving them different languages occurs in Genesis 11. Well, they just keep occurring. In the story of Genesis 11, the inhabitants of the land of Shinar, which is introduced in Daniel 1-2 and in Genesis 10-10, decide to build a city and a tower with its tops in the heaven. Genesis 11-4. In our story, Daniel 4, the tree's height reaches to the heavens. Verse 8. Back to Genesis 11 The reason why the people of Shinar began their building program was to make a name for themselves, that they may be scattered over the face of the earth, Genesis 11.4. So God punishes their inordinate desire at achieving a kind of transcendence on its own, climbing to heaven in 11.6, by confusing their language so that they will not understand one another's speech, chapter 11, verse 7, and scattering them from that place over the whole face of the whole earth so that they stop building the city, chapter 11, verse 8. And thus the motivation for the city and the tower, lest they be scattered, becomes a divine punishment itself. For this reason, the city was called Babel. Because there, God confused the speech of all the earth. And from there, God scattered them over the face of the earth. Chapter 11, verse 9. In our section, Daniel 4, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and his empire are compared to a gigantic tree. Verse 7 and verse 8. And the poem clearly suggests that the king thought his greatness and the glory of Babylon were the results of his own efforts. Verse 14, and then looking forward to next week, chapter 5, verse 20. The tree is punished by being chopped down to its stump. The king loses sovereignty, rule over his kingdom, and he's deprived of the use of his reason for seven years. And he lives like a beast in the grass of the earth. 
verse 12 and 13. He becomes the victim of zoanthropy, perhaps, which is a form of insanity in which human beings think themselves to be beasts or animals. Or some people say lycanthropy, namely a wolf-like insanity. That might be fun for some to chase that, but we're not going to go there. Just register those as the options. There might even be an allusion to the seven days of creation here in Genesis 1 and 2, made by the seven years of punishment. So what's the payoff for this kind of analysis? Well, these two sections of Scripture looked at together, compared and contrasted, Genesis 1 through 3 and Genesis 11, the Babel account, and Daniel 4 seem to be suggesting that a king who is arrogant, like Nebuchadnezzar, and thinks himself to be like a god through his own self-aggrandizement, must become like a beast in order to learn that he is a mere human. Nebuchadnezzar, for a sin of rebellion, loses his place in creation as a punishment. He must forfeit his human dignity, the apex of creation, day six, creation of man and woman. So he must forfeit, give up that human dignity and even his right to rule over creatures and creation. He's to become like a beast and live on the food that animals eat for seven years so he can learn his station in life and and learn his place, mind his place. In other words, the theme of dominion has been played with ironically here. There's no doubt that these intertextual kinds of illusions are going on. Genesis recognizes that humanity is given dominion over all creation. The birds, the fish, the other beasts. However, Nebuchadnezzar, grasping and seizing at dominion here in Daniel 4, the one who has tried to seize dominion now must become a bird beast himself. So now the prophet's proclamation. And I don't mean just Daniel's here. What I want to do is give you a context for this tree imagery that occurs elsewhere in Scripture so that you might understand the text by understanding the imagery that's being evoked. You see, the prophets especially... Um, often appeal to trees to represent kingdoms, sometimes positive, sometimes negative. So, for example, positive tree imagery, sometimes the prophets will use tree imagery to express kingdom rule, even the hope of a messianic rule, for example, in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. Those shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, And a branch shall grow out of his roots, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And in that day, the root of Jesse shall find or shall stand as an ensign that is a sign to the peoples. Him shall the nations seek, and his dwelling shall be glorious. We could also turn to Ezekiel 17, 22 to 24, or Hosea 14, verses 5 and 7 for a similar 
positive kind of tree imagery. But often the prophets also use tree imagery in a negative sense, and especially in order to communicate a condemnation of pride, especially on the part of human civil magistrates and rulers. So here we see this especially in Isaiah 10, verses 33 to 34. Behold, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, will lop the boughs, that is the branches, with terrifying power. The great and height will be hewn down, and the lofty will be brought low. And he will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon with its majestic trees will fall, Isaiah 10. But even more poignantly, and related to our text, is Ezekiel's negative tree imagery. In order to describe the fall of the great kingdom of Egypt and the Pharaoh who had boasted himself up in his pride, chapter 31. Behold, I will liken you to a cedar in Lebanon, with fair branches and forest shade and of great height its top among the clouds. And all the birds of the air made their nest in its boughs, its branches. And under its branches all the beasts of the field brought forth their young. And under its shadow dwelt all the great nations. No tree in the garden of God was like it in beauty. And I made it beautiful in the mass of its branches, and all the trees of Eden envied it that were in the garden of God. Further on in chapter 31. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because it towered high and set its top among the clouds and its heart was proud of its height, I will give it into the hand of a mighty one of the nations and he shall surely deal with it as its wickedness deserves. For I have cast it out. Foreigners, the most terrible of the nations, will cut it down and leave it. And on the mountains and in all the valleys, its branches will fall, and its branches will be broken in all the watercourses of the land, and all the people of the earth will go from its shadow and leave it. So you see what Daniel has done in chapter 4 is very similar to what the prophet Ezekiel has done in chapter 31. He's used this negative tree imagery representing a kingdom or political power that's puffed up in its pride in order to announce that indeed following this self-exaltation will come an abasement in power. In other words, a bringing low. And what God is doing in announcing this to Nebuchadnezzar is merciful. Sin makes you stupid. I'm sure all of us know someone who we thought was brilliant. And then we get the sad news. They went off the rails. My most brilliant student I ever trained fits that category. Because sin had made him stupid. So he was defrocked from the pastorate, and he lost a very promising career. But it's not just Nebuchadnezzar, brilliant students or mediocre students. 
for all of us, sin makes you stupid. See, Nebuchadnezzar in his foolish pride may think that he is the sovereign of the entire world. But the matter of fact is that he is not even sovereign of his own story. And this bit can be seen when we narrow our focus on the structure of the chapter. So now if you turn to this handout, let me explain the structure of the chapter to give evidence for the point I just made. There is here a wonderfully artistically arranged inverted structure, what we call a chiasm. And what I mean by that, if you'll look at your little handout, is the parts balance out with a clear focus on the center. So you have a prologue, verses 1 to 3, an epilogue, verses 34 to 38. And then you have the recounting of the dream reception, or actually the dream reception, verses 4 to 7. And then notice you have the first dialogue. The king speaks to Daniel here. And then in verse 10 to 17, you have a recital of the content of the dream. And then you have the second dialogue, which if you look at the bottom way it's arranged, dialogue two, there's two, spe- two speeches here. First of all, in verses 18 and 19, the king speaks to Daniel. And then in verse 19, Daniel speaks to the king. And then balancing out B on B prime, the other side of the inverted structure, You have a dream interpretation given by Daniel in verses 20 to 26. And then his third dialogue, or the third dialogue presented, Daniel speaks now to the king and calls on him to repent. And then you get the balancing part of the dream reception with the dream fulfillment in verses 28 through 33. Now, these kinds of structures occur not everywhere in the Bible, Don't trust somebody who finds them everywhere in the Bible. But they do occur all over. And they surely occur in Daniel all over, both macro inverted structures and minor ones. This is a minor one I'm showing you, which is a major one as well. Now, the point here is not merely to observe the structure, but to ask what the meaning of the structure is. And so we want to do that. To point out the structure is all well and good, However, we want to ask, what does it mean? This is what it means, simply stated. The narrator has reinforced Daniel's perspective. The prophet's knowledge and wisdom especially in contrast to Nebuchadnezzar's lack thereof. Because sin makes you stupid. Notice Daniel's variation of the interpretation of the dream in verses 20 through 26 is different than Nebuchadnezzar's recitation of the dream. And then in verse 27, what we've labeled Z, Daniel calls on him to repent. And that differs, a very different perspective than Nebuchadnezzar's relating the dream if you look at X or verses 8. And nine, if you will. See, Nebuchadnezzar has no accurate self-perception. 
He is so full of pride that he must fall, and he does fall. And the mental effects of his sinful pride profoundly influence his interpretation not only of his own life, his power, but also the world itself. But then after he resigns his pride, and a very idiomatic phrase from the Psalms, he turns his eyes to the heavens, he regains his reason, and he's allowed to resume his own story. And finally, he acknowledges that any power that a king or a magistrate has is due to the fact that the Most High God has given it to him. And then he launches into this doxology. Praise, kids, to God. Notice at the moment that he acknowledges that none can stay God's hands or say to him, what have you done? At that time, his understanding comes back. And he takes up his civic duties again. And those who are his underlings now hold court with him in order to appropriately and submissively advise him. What a contrast there is between Nebuchadnezzar as king and Christ as king. What a difference there is between us poor sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. Christ has achieved exaltation through humiliation. Nebuchadnezzar achieved humiliation through self-exaltation. It's not Christmas, but that's okay. We'll quote a Christmas sermon from St. Augustine. You see, O man, what God has become for you. Take the heart of this great lesson in humility. Though the teacher of it is still without speech. Once in paradise, you were so eloquent that you gave a name to every living being. But your creator, because of you, lay speechless and did not even call his mother by her name. You, finding yourself in a boundless estate of fruitful growth, destroyed yourself by having no regard for obedience. He, obedient, came as a mortal man to a poor, tiny lodging that by dying he might seek the return of him who had died. You, though you were only man, you wished to be God, and you were lost. Human pride pressed you down so that divine humility alone could lift you up. On the day Martin Luther died, his close friends went downstairs to the room where he was the night before and carved on a wooden table there were the words in Latin, we are beggars, this is true. May God grant us the grace to never forget that we are all beggars. For the Lord Jesus Christ came, born to die, born to live a righteous life, born under the law so that he might ransom those who are under the law and adopt us as children. Born for you and I, died for you and I, lived for us. 
May God keep us from our foolish pride, and may he ever give to us humble, dependent spirits that indeed never forget that though our Savior was rich, he became poor for our sake, so that we, in our poverty, might indeed become rich. Let's pray.